in some way, when I start to make an instrument, for me, is nearly finished. Because I already have very clear in my mind everything. And in some way, if this uh, instrument uh, is not ordered, I already have in my mind which is the potential customer, which are the characteristics of the potential customer for the instrument I'm making. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family, and part two of my conversation with Italian violin maker Marco Piccinotti. Marco lives in the town of San Paolo di Enza, which is located between Parma and Bologna in the northern part of Italy. Here we talk about the Milan style of violin making, the challenges facing violin makers in the world today, the art of buying wood, and the practice of antiquing instruments. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My teacher, Master Renato Scorlovezza, was a teacher in both the school, in Parma and in Milan. So he gave uh, his, um, his imprinting in both of them. And more precisely, especially regarding a Milan school. Milan school, um, uh, when we talk about violin making school in Milan, uh, we have to consider uh, another aspect. We have to consider the Milan violin making tradition. It was, um, it was the most important violin making area um, between the 19th and 20th century until um, 1950, 1960, more or less. So when we talk about Milan, uh, it's a very important city regarding violin making, extremely important. It means the Milan violin making school is in some way, uh, in some way it continues the tradition of the previous violin making, uh, violin making reality in the city. On uh, the top, or better, there is, a, there is a, a family of violin makers who became, who became the reference in Milan. Is, this is the Biziak family, Biziak family. The father, the most important, uh, and uh, four sons. All of them violin makers. In addition, there were also other violin makers. And among them, there was uh, at that time a deep connection. Uh, they worked together, each other, and so on. So at that time, if we consider uh, the beginning of 20th century, century until 1940-1950 so many very good violin makers were based in Milan uh, in the same period 
it means um, they left a very big heritage very big heritage in many different directions the violin making school of milan um, the objective of the violin making school of milan is to continue the on this direction the style and the idea of violin making in some way the method of making could you give me an example let's say between the cremona school the violin making school of cremona is mainly based following following the um, uh, cremonese violin makers of the golden period of violin making is it means it means uh, the violin makers uh, of the 18th century 17th century that this they have this kind of reference and um, and they develop they de- develop this style following these uh, these examples violin making school of milan and also parma develop their um, their style and their uh, characteristics of, of violin making following the local tradition this local tradition of course is much younger much younger but much younger doesn't mean worse or less important so give me an example if you were to look at a violin made in the traditional way of Stradivari, Guarneri, Amati mm-hmm. versus these violins first of all um, the first and most important aspect is the model the model of the instrument we immediately recognize a Guarneri model or a Stradivari model is um, very very easy in the same way we it, we immediately recognize a model uh, from uh, the Milan uh, the Milan tradition so just the shape yes this is the most important aspect so i know like the steiners would have the very high arching things like that that you would see in different violins these these kind of details this kind of details yes anything else very specific to the milan or the parma style mm-hmm. if you were to see pick up a violin you would say yeah uh, generally speaking um, uh, especially the milan um, the milan tradition according to the milan tradition we have a very elegant instrument extremely elegant extremely nice extremely elegant uh, from the selection of the wood very often uh, special wood special in the meaning of fascinating fascinating wood very beautiful varnishes and very precise and clean work and in general an architectural project extremely extremely elegant would there be much antiquing in the Milanese or the Parma? They have, they have, uh, both of them have also uh, antique tradition, not as much as important like Cremona, but in any case, the, the distance from Cremona was not so big. Mm, since that time, some violin makers moved. 
moved in Parma, in Milan, and also in many other Italian cities. We have Venice, we have Mantua, we have Bologna, we have Modena. Guadagnini was in Turin. Uh, yeah, Something. exactly. Guadagnini was in Turin for um, different reasons. He was um, requested to go there by the greatest collector of ever. He worked directly for him. That was the reason why he moved. But generally speaking, uh, J.B. Guadagnini um, life is very interesting because he moved many different cities. And before then Turin, he was in Milan. Before the Milan, he was in Parma. Just to give you an example. <laughs> A true Italian maker. <laughs> And uh, if we continue to talk a little bit about Guadagnini, Um, I consider uh, Guadagnini family extremely important because uh, Guadagnini family was involved in violin making since the father of the most important Guadagnini, Guadagnini member. The father of J.B. Guadagnini was already violin maker and very good violin maker. The family... The, the, the Guadagnini family continues until 1940-44. The last member died during the Second World War. How, how did he die, do you know? He was in the army. He died in the army. And he was the last. And he was still a maker. All of them. In Italy, we have two family, two families. Starting for, from the golden period of Italian vinyl making until the beginning of 20th century. One of them is Guadagnini family, the other one is Galliano family. Galliano. From Naples. And uh, both the family, both the member of, uh, both the family man, member continued to be vinyl makers. From the 18th century, the beginning of 18th century, until the beginning of 20th century. We have just two families with a so long violin making story in it. And neither of those families are involved in violin making now? No, we don't have any other families with, with so long tradition. We have some families with um, one or two generations in violin making, but not, not more than two or three generations, at least I don't remember in this moment. Yeah. What is the violin maker today? If we compare nowadays violin making with the violin making in the past, violin making changed, and of course also the violin maker, the, 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 the violin maker figure changed very much in very short time and recently. Uh, if we consider the violin makers, um, the, the violin maker uh, of 20, 30 years ago, In some way, they were totally different than nowadays because they were just violin makers. I mean, they just made their own instruments, nothing else. 
they worked behind the workbench. The, their um, customer came in through the door, and that's all, nothing else. Today, uh, the violin maker is uh, a totally different professional figure. The violin maker must, uh, must be able uh, uh, must be able to have a relation worldwide. If not, uh, just with a local customer, it's impossible to survive. Uh, there is uh, not enough, uh, not enough business possibilities. In addition, the violin maker nowadays is a um, is a professional figure uh, in the world. He must have knowledge about the author of the past. He must have knowledge about bows, bows repair. He must have knowledge, of course, regarding uh, restoration. And uh, when a customer come in in the workshop, he must go out with a solution or explanation. Instead, in the past, the violin maker just made his own instruments, nothing else, nothing else. No other, um, no other uh, professional aspect, generally speaking. Maybe a little bit of business with all the instruments and so on, but that's all, nothing else. And very often, no relation, very, very few relation with uh, foreign customers. And in general, not so necessary. Not so necessary because the local customers were more than enough for his business. This is the very, very big difference. Uh, if we compare uh, nowadays winemakers with the winemakers uh, of 20, 30 years ago, not so long times, not, long so, not so many years ago. So another skill the violin maker would need to learn in your case, of course, you also learn to play the violin so that you can exactly. demonstrate. Yes, yes, yes. But you have to learn languages. That's true. And That's custom. True. Yes, I have, uh, I have to be able to communicate. To communicate uh, with people coming uh, all over the world. Yeah, this is another uh, basic aspect <laughs> of the violin maker of today. <laughs> That's very interesting. So... Could you give me an example, any detail, not so much about language, but custom in, in the case of, let's say you're going to sell a violin to somebody from Korea, yeah. or they're going to look at your violin, or somebody's from Russia, or they're from Dubai, yes, or they're from my town, yeah. where you sell your violin through our local shop, uh, yes. and uh, an true. American. What, what have you found that's different in the way people think about money? how they expect the transaction to happen. Any, any interesting insights? This is, um, this is a um, very complicated uh, matter. Of course, I have to consider different uh, habits, different traditions, uh, different minds of the people. I have to consider, I must consider, absolutely. And in addition, uh, and absolutely not less important, I have to consider their needs or their taste 
their, their taste about music and about sound. Uh, even more, I have to consider the, um, the environment, the weather situation, weather condition and so on, because, uh, you know, these kind of instruments are made by wood and they are extremely sensitive to these aspects. So uh, I have to prepare the instruments considering also the final destination, at least some aspect of the instrument. Do you do much custom work uh, where people ask you beforehand to, to build them an instrument? More or less uh, half of my instruments are made uh, on request and with um, some specific characteristics. And sometimes you deliver that instrument and it's what they wanted? Sometimes is it not what they wanted? Uh, until now, I had two experiences. One, um, one case is they, were, uh, they received exactly the instrument they expected. The other possibility, they received the instruments over their expectation. That's, that's a lovely dilemma. <laughs> yes, this is a very big satisfaction for me. I would think so. Yeah. And this is my main objective. Since the beginning of my career, my main objective is the satisfaction of my customer. Because the satisfaction of my customer, first of all, is my satisfaction. And generally speaking, uh, uh, when I, I make an instrument, it must satisfy myself first. I must be satisfied. If I'm not satisfied, uh, there is something. Uh, if, it's not, if it is not satisfactory for me, uh, for, uh, it's something not acceptable. So I do something to improve. I, I do something to improve, to fix, to... I change something to reach the expected results or the expected characteristics. For me, violin making starts when I buy the wood from the wood dealer. This is the first stage of violin making for me. I have a quite uh, big uh, wood store uh, with hundreds and hundreds of sets of wood. But more or less, all of them are in my memory. So, when I started to make a new instrument, I already know which is the most appropriate wood to reach this kind of uh, this kind of uh, sound, this kind of characteristic, I want to reach. This is the starting point, and of course, uh, I focus my attention during all the violin making steps to reach exactly the characteristic I want to reach. In some way, when I start to make an instrument. For me, it's nearly finished because I already have very clear in my mind everything. 
And in some way, if this uh, instrument uh, is not ordered, I already have in my mind which is the potential customer, which are the characteristics of the potential customer for the instrument I'm making. So I, I have an idea also of the, um, of the connection with the final customer. But we do love surprises <laughs> as human beings. <laughs> so tell me when you've been surprised, when you've, you've in your mind picked the wood, everything was, you pretty much thought this is how it would go, but it took a direction you didn't expect for whatever reason. Mm. I, I don't have so specific story because in, in this direction, I never had special good or special bad experience or, um, or, or in, in generally speaking, experiences totally different than my expectation. Um, so generally speaking, um, generally speaking, the things until now went more or less in the direction I expected. Who's the most unusual person to buy one of your violins? Uh, unusual, unusual person. In some way, very often the musicians are unusual people. Very often. Uh, everybody of them has some special, special personal characteristics. Because they are artists, and the artist, uh, um, I think the artist must have something particular in one direction or another, and so on. So maybe for this reason, I don't consider. Uh, I, I I think I never had a special uh, special experiences, <laughs> and. Um, and uh, I, I enjoy to have a relation, I like very much to have a relation with, um, with particular people or with people with some special or particular characteristics. This is, I, I have, um, I have good, good feelings with them. Is there a particular violin you've made that you had an extra fondness for? Yesterday when we inter interviewed Mr. Grisales, yeah, he had a viola. Uh, sitting up there, and he said, no. He said, I bought this back mm. from someone because I realized I have none of the instruments that I made, mm. and I, I really wanted to have one. Yeah. So is there any violin that stands out in your mind as one you still remember? In my, in my career, there are um, some violin, some instruments, generally speaking, very important for me. They are very few, but very important because they represent... Um, they represent moving uh, for me, for my career, for my for my quality, for the level of my work. They represent a concrete improvement. So I I still remember them very clearly in my mem my memory. And where are those instruments now? I just remember uh, who bought them. But uh, I'm not sure they are, they are still in that town or that country. You know, this kind of instrument move very easily. 
<laughs> we talked earlier, and I, I had asked you if you had any children, and you said you didn't have children, and then we paused a moment, and then you said, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, your violins. Yeah. I like children you send out into the world, aren't they? Uh, I have, uh, in this meaning, I have more than 200 children. <laughs> <laughs> Someday you should have a, re a reunion. I, in this meaning, I had, uh, I had uh, quite nice experiences and some, uh, I, I have to say, emotional experiences. Because a few years ago, for example, I had the opportunity to see again the first viola I made. So it was a very big emotion for me, very big emotion. And I, I saw the viola in Japan. I didn't sell in Japan when uh, I sold uh, the viola first time. So I found that, uh, that uh, just by coincidence in Japan. Just finished by telling uh, the making of the Contessa. That's what uh, Robert Ray calls the violin you made for his wife. I remember very well that violin. Uh, it's a very special violin for me. And um, it's not, uh, it's not uh, by chance if I decided to use the picture of that violin for my brochures. Yeah. Because I consider, um, I, I have a special relation with that violin. I have a good relation, of course, with all of my instruments, but with some of them, I have particular relation. And that violin is uh, among uh, those ones I consider very important for my, for my professional career, for my professional aspects. Additionally, uh, it, is in, it is now in the hand of a very important uh, person for me. Uh, when uh, Bob decided to buy this violin, he told me um, his intention to, to give this violin to his wife. And considering I already had a very deep relation with him, for me, it was very important to know this violin remain in his family. I mean, it's not for, uh, for the market like all the other instruments. For his shop, I mean. That's wonderful. Do you antique? You don't antique your instruments? No. I never did uh, antique uh, instruments or um, old-looking instruments, and I will never do. The reason is very simple. If we consider all the most important violin makers of the past, they never. They just did their own work and they became famous for their own work. The time aged naturally, in natural way, their instruments and they became fascinating with the time and with the usage, not with artificial method, with chemical treatment and so on. Additionally, I don't have any intention to sell illusion, illusions to my customers. Because I, I have this kind of feeling. When 
when a player buy an artificially aged instrument he is buying an illusion because he has the sensation to play with an old instrument but it, this is new is but is old looking there is something doesn't match there is something wrong don't you think so additionally 20 years later 50 years later who recognized the maker because the maker hide himself behind his work this is exactly the opposite i intend to do i i wanted to express as much as possible myself my style and my character in my work if uh, we consider the the most important author of the past it's not necessary to have a look to the label you immediately recognize the author just looking the instrument immediately because uh, his hand his character his style is uh, so clear this is his signature the signature is in his work not on the label so for me is um is a not proper not proper way of violin making i understand many people can appreciate or can have a, a good feeling i mean the customer i mean the player they can feel um, they they think it looks old so the sound is better very often they they think in this way but of course it's totally absurd and totally wrong and the audience itself might think that way but the audience doesn't uh, don't know uh, if uh, the violin is new or or old or old looking and so on so in general in general in the past if we consider the past uh some authors did did uh, old looking instrument but with totally different um, objective they made copies and they sold these copies as original as a fake instrument so it's totally different totally different marketing aspect <laughs> is is there some um... An old American word is skullduggery. It's an old great word. And sorry, sorry, can yeah. you repeat? Old American? Uh, an old American slang word is ah, slang. is skullduggery, mm. which means uh, tricking people, doing things that aren't honest. You know, maybe buying factory violins from China, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, blonde, not finished, and then finishing them and then saying, oh, it was made by these people this person at this workshop in Italy or Germany or France. Yeah. Um, how much of that goes on, do you think, you know, without... This is a very sensitive matter nowadays. And um, is much more complicated and complex than we can think. You talked about uh, factory-made instruments. So factory-made very often are, have very low quality. But there are also other instruments made by violin makers. 
Mm, so, I think we have to consider this, uh, this matter in this way. If, uh, the, um, first of all, we have to consider there are good violin makers all, all over the world nowadays, not only in Italy. And nowadays it's very easy to, to travel, so many Chinese. Uh, in Italy we have many Chinese students, for example. And they learn, they learn. In the same way, they, they learned in the past, and, the, and nowadays they have their own violin making school. Some of them not bad, frankly speaking. And there are also some very good violin makers in China, as well as in Japan, as well as in the US, in Germany, everywhere in the world. But to focus the attention on your, uh, on your question, if we consider a good uh, Chinese violin maker working in China, he makes a Chinese violin, right? If the same violin maker move to Italy and make the same violin in Italy, it becomes an Italian violin, right? Which is the difference among them? Nothing. If I go to China and I make my violin in China, does my violin become Chinese? So, where is the point? The point is not where the instrument is made but in which way and which kind of knowledge, which kind of experience, this is the point. In my opinion, it's not so important where it is made, but who is the maker and in which way the instrument is made. This is the point. So the word factory violin might apply to a process where one person just carves scrolls. That's all they do. Yeah, yeah. And of course, violin, uh, instruments, uh, factory made, uh, is a totally different, uh, totally different approach, totally different matter in the world. Yeah. So, um, I know this is a very difficult question. I think we're done and probably, you know, this is a, a big question, so. Mm -hmm. I don't very know. big, very big, especially nowadays. Yeah. It's just how you as an individual violin maker, because, what I perceive in our conversation from beginning was the whole, the holistic, the word I guess I would use, the holistic understanding of the violin you're making. Knowing the wood, even yes, knowing the exactly, customer, exactly, you're, you're exactly. kind of projecting and sort of seeing it all the way through. Where the industrial process, which we apply to so many other things in life, seems to have, seems to lose something essentially human that I think we're losing in many areas of our society, not yeah, just in violin making, but in many areas, that the, uh, the skilled individual, the individual. Yeah, yeah. We can't compare factory-made instruments with um, um, instruments be made by violin makers. They are totally different, uh, totally different uh, instruments, but the approach is totally different. In, in the factory, they produce a product. Is this a violin? Is this a cell phone? It's the same for them. <laughs> Is this an electronics or something else? 
or um, closing. Instead, the violin maker, uh, as I told you at the beginning, for me, the violin maker is an artist, first of all. He's an artist. So, the violin maker produces a piece of art before the musical instrument. This is the point. Very important point. You know, very often I ask a terrible question to my customers. Just to test their approach. For example, a violin player come to me, I ask him, you have, uh, you must choose among two violins. One is very beautiful, but the sound is so-so. One is very ugly, but the sound is very good. The price is the same. Which one you buy? 99% of the answer are uh, I buy I buy the ugly one because it has very good sound. Okay, and you make a mistake. Why? Because if you buy the very beautiful one, you can improve the sound. After that, you have a very beautiful violin with very beautiful sound. But the very ugly one, you can't change everything. It will be very ugly forever. There is no hope to improve. The player, the, the musician, they are concentrated about the sound. So they consider the instrument like a musical instrument, not like a piece of art. This is the point. And additionally, if we consider all the violin makers in the world, since the beginning of violin makers, making, sorry, we will find very, very, very few violin makers able to make beautiful instruments. Many more able to make good sounding instruments. Uh, we find just five, seven makers each century able to make very, very beautiful instruments. Some one of them also good sounding. Some other, the sound was not exactly the best. But uh, if, we, if we consider the artistic aspect very beautiful. So in this case, a good violin maker can improve the sound, changing something, working on the instrument. At the end, you have very nice instrument with very good sound. This is my approach with violin making. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Their theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to hear additional podcasts, you know what to do. Visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I'll end with a quote from the novel A Room with a View by E.M. Foster. 
Life, wrote a friend of mine, is a public performance on the violin in which you must learn the instrument as you go along. Thank you.